0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to There's a Startup for That, powered by CoCubed. This is a podcast dedicated to telling the stories of collaboration and innovation at corporates, celebrating awesome partnerships. You're here with me, Neil, and my colleague, Mark.
1: Hello. Hi, everyone.
0: And we're back with another safe the Corporate story.
1: We are. And this episode is a little bit different because we have a special guest joining us to share his expertise on the subject of corporate Times Startup Collaborations. So joining us today is Dr. Shameen Prashantham. Welcome. Welcome, Dr. Shameen. Hey, Mark. Hey, Neil.
2: Great to join you on this podcast.
1: It really is, really is a privilege to have Dr. Shameen with us, a renowned international researcher and expert in international business and strategy, and Associate Dean, MBA at China Europe International Business School in Shanghai, China. Dr. Shami, where are you joining us from today?
2: I'm joining you from Shanghai, from the very school you mentioned, in a little studio room that we used extensively to do Zoom teaching and now has come in handy for doing our podcast today.
1: Awesome. People who are listening to this podcast probably can't see, but there is a, a whole team um, helping, uh, helping here. So it's awesome. And thank you for joining us. How's things in Shanghai at the moment? Well, you know,
2: things are extremely hectic at the moment Uh, in the aftermath of the ending of the zero COVID Mm. policy earlier this year. It feels as if Mm. everyone's trying to pack into three months what they couldn't do in three years. So, uh, but it's a lot better than being in lockdown, which was the case for us this time last
1: year. Yeah. Wow.
0: Yeah. Things are returning to normal finally. Um, and also, Shemin, you had recently released a book called Gorilla Can Dance. Um, which is all about the where, why, and how of corporate startup partnerships. Um, and we will be diving deeper into that today. And also, spoiler alert, our CEO, Jeremy Busser, is also featuring this. So yeah, again, a big welcome uh, to Shamine I mean, we did give a little bit of context of who you are, where you are to the audience. Um, but it would be great if you could give a little bit of introduction um, about your work, what you're currently doing, um, and then we'll dive deeper into your book.
2: Sure. So, well, really, I'm delighted to be on this uh, podcast uh, with both of you. As you mentioned, Jeremy is mentioned in the book. Um, And so, you know, mine is the perspective of an academic researcher who has been looking at this phenomenon of large corporations and startups uh, working together. And I was sort of lucky in a way that I stumbled upon it before it became a thing. So I was doing my doctoral work in Scotland on how startups go international. And, you know, it occurred to me that international business researchers were either looking at big multinationals. In fact, that was sort of the majority of uh, the work. And some were beginning to look at startups. But, you know, it was as if never the twain shall meet. Yet I was beginning to notice in Scotland some of the American multinationals there like IBM and Sun Microsystems were beginning to talk to local startups because the multinationals were actually trying to up their game and do more innovation. The local companies were looking for access to the marketing muscle of the large companies. But those were early days and uh, I happened to ask a very senior professor, what he thought about uh, this topic, whether it made sense for me, uh, you know, early in my career to, to to look at it. And he said, I don't think these startups have a choice in many cases. They need to learn to dance with the big gorilla. Mm. And uh, that's how I developed this notion of dancing with gorillas from the point of view of the startups. And over time came to realize that many large corporations, including Unilever, um, when Jeremy was there, we were beginning to proactively and systematically engage with startups. And that's how I eventually wrote a book called Gorillas Can Dance. So, you know, dancing with uh, gorillas is sort of more my message to the startups. And, you know, recently I also um, have a, TED t- a TEDx talk that's come out, Mm. Uh, talking to the startups more. And I'm very happy because, you know, that's the group I was initially speaking to uh, and then sort of switched to talking to the big companies. And, and to the big companies, the, and, you know, I think that's an important target audience for this podcast. You know, it's about how can big gorillas dance effectively with startups.
0: Nice. Thank you so much for that background. Yeah. We were going to ask like why gorillas and what it means by gorillas can dance. So you'd definitely answer that question for us.
1: Yeah, thank you. Yeah, without the context, um, but actually it's such a powerful image, isn't it? Of this dancing with a gorilla. Um, What kind of image does that evoke for you, gorilla? You know, what what kind of thing are you trying to pull out of that image with dancing with a gorilla? You know, that's a
2: great question. I think initially was just about size. You know, people talk about the 200 pound gorilla in the room, that mm. sort of thing. But I think one of the reasons why that phrase resonated with a lot of people is it also hints at the prospect of danger. So as mm. a startup, you can get trampled when you're dancing with a big gorilla. And, you know, other people have used the phrase like swimming with sharks. Others have used the term surviving bear <laughs> <hands>. <laughs> you know, a lot yep. of animal imagery. Uh, so I think one of the key things that I noticed was that there was a bit of a paradox. So on the one hand, big companies and startups seem to have very clearly the prospect of a win-win situation. Big companies have scale. For example, Mm. startups have agility, Mm. put the two together. Surely that's a marriage made in heaven. (laughs) But (laughs) if it was that easy, then I don't think we'd be having this conversation and there would have been no need for me to spend over a decade and a half uh, researching this across different parts of the world. I think the paradox is the very differences that make it attractive to come together also make it difficult Mm -hmm. or at least not straightforward to do so. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so I think part of this metaphor is recognizing the asymmetry and figuring out now how do we make this
1: work mm. Mm. well let's let's spend some time on on that, particularly of how we make it work. Um, in the book, you've got three quite clear sort of sections you've got the why, the how, and the where. Um, and you know start with another book, start with why, Simon Sinek. let's start with the why and before we move through the sections could you could you tell us a little bit more about the why? Why you know people are dancing with gorillas from a startup perspective corporate um, corporate perspective as well Oh absolutely. So I think from the startup perspective it's
2: relatively straightforward and clear. Mm-hmm. Startups essentially pursue opportunities and assemble resources to be able to do that and in that regard they're very different from large corporations which sort of start with resources that they control and seek to manage them optimally. So in that process of pulling together resources, startups are typically mindful about attracting financial capital, human capital, but they also need social capital or you know, having strategic partnerships. And from their point of view, if they can engage with large corporations, that then that in turn can potentially open the door to financial capital because investors might take you more seriously. Uh, to human capital because people may be more comfortable to work for you. Uh, and there's also a legitimacy benefit. So in fact, there are three things I, I say. You know, the startups gain legitimacy, they gain learning, and they may get, gain leads. Uh, you know, new business opportunities by being part of the ecosystem. But I think from the big companies' point of view as well, there are huge benefits. And I think the starting point is that many of them have realized that a business as usual is not going to get them very far. What made them successful yesterday isn't necessarily going to make them successful tomorrow. That has been a you know off-repeated mm-hmm. story. Uh, You know, maybe the business environment has changed. Um, You know, you're a one trick pony Mm. and you need to adjust. So one of the lead cases in my book and a company I've been just very lucky to have studied for many years is Microsoft. Mm. And, you know, they absolutely dominated the PC era. But, um, you know, when things started changing to the mobile Internet and so on, then, you know, they realized that uh, things had to change. Um, and then cloud computing became a thing, and then it became all the more important for a company like that to engage with startups. Mm. But then what was really interesting to me, and this was about 2015, um, I, and, and which is actually when I joined uh, the place that I'm currently working at, uh, Siebes in Shanghai, I gave a talk based on A few years of research with companies like Microsoft and IBM and SAP and, you know, saying these companies are trying to attract startups to build solutions on top of their underlying platform technologies. And the people who came to me afterwards were from Ford, Mm. from Unilever. And in fact, right after that, I was invited to go and give a talk uh, to the Unilever folks in Shanghai. And that's, in fact, how I then... Uh, came to learn about Unilever Foundry and Jeremy's work and so on. So I think that the the basic rationale for the why from the large company's point of view is that they recognize the need to be entrepreneurial themselves, but also that it is useful to tap into entrepreneurship outside of the boundaries of their company.
0: Yeah, I love it. I think that is what, you know, like through our podcast, we have been trying to send this message on out every episode in the fact that um, you need to look beyond your four walls and um, to find new innovative solutions that you know you might not have came across before like you don't know what you don't know kind of thing mm-hmm. with the corporates so I um, partnering with startups, it's a great way for you to expand your horizon and make sure you stay relevant to your consumers indeed. Um, so now we would love to move on to the how. And um, so now that we know the reason why corporates and startups would, you know, should partner together, how should they do that? How should they go about it?
2: Great question. And, you know, in a way that's at the heart of the book and what I've been trying to figure out. And I've uh, now identified two sets of answers to, to that question. One is with regard to the more immediate issue of how do you address these asymmetries—the fact that you have these huge differences—and you know what I found is that the companies that have taken startup partnering seriously mm. are the ones that sort of took this uh, head on and said, "Well, let's figure out how to deal with this," as opposed to you know saying, "Forget about it; it's too much hassle." Because I think there's been a lot of disillusionment. Mm. For many companies, you know, on on the face of it, it it just sounds like an obvious thing to do, and then you start doing it, and you find that it's actually very difficult, and then, you know, people give up, or, you know, there's also tendency for innovation theater, you know, you do this because it's cool, and then there's very little to show for it. So one part of the answer to the how is, it is by overcoming asymmetry. So the starting point is to then understand what these asymmetries are, and I've highlighted three. One is goal asymmetry, which is, you know, the two sets of companies want different things, and importantly, at different timescales. Second is a structure asymmetry. It's very easy for two big companies to find role counterparts, uh, vice president of marketing of one context, vice president of marketing of the other, Mm. much more difficult uh, when it's a big company and a startup. And the third is what I called attention asymmetry, which is to say that the big company looks out and sees this ocean of startups with cool-sounding names and very attractive PowerPoint decks and don't know who the heck to give their limited managerial attention to. The startups know who the big companies are, but struggle to get the attention of the people who matter. Okay, so... The pattern that I noticed across a range of companies, be they Microsoft, Unilever, or a whole bunch of other companies is first to address the goal asymmetry, they clarified what the synergy was. That sounds blindingly obvious, but I just feel this notion of a win-win gets bandied around a lot. And But the startup isn't really clear. What exactly is the division of entrepreneurial labor here? Mm. And I found two broad approaches. The likes of Microsoft were saying, well, we are interested in a building block synergy. We have these underlying technologies. We want startups to build on top of them. When a license of their solution is sold, an underlying license of ours is sold. And now that they move to cloud computing, it's all the more self-evident that that makes sense. But for the likes of Unilever, it was more of a pain point synergy. There are new things that we're needing to do, and we don't necessarily have the skills. And a lot of this was driven by digitalization. And so just making it clear that, you know, we want you to come and address our pain point, BMW, that, which started its startup partnering program about the same time as Unilever, they also had that kind of approach. We need to improve cybersecurity, for example. Uh, okay, so that's step one. And then you have the structure asymmetry, which is, you know, that I think is, takes a bit of doing. And that's where you need to create interfaces. You know, what is the port of call? So in the, and, and the companies that take this seriously, you can tell because it's clearly branded. It's reasonably well resourced. So you had BMW startup uh, garage. You had Unilever foundry specific entities. And there again, I saw two patterns. You might uh, have a cohort, the typical format being an accelerator. So it's a little bit like I say to my MBA students, it's like getting into an MBA program. You know, getting in is difficult, but once you get in, there's a structured curriculum, Mm -hmm. a a period of time, and the peer interaction is very important. And there or you might have a funnel, which is more like the job search process after an MBA, uh, many more start the program, the, the process than ended. You get screened out along the way, and you may not know who else is part of the process. And uh, so, I would say Unilever Foundry, uh, BMW's program were more along those lines. Um, what SAP was doing, the Microsoft Accelerator, uh, Infinity Labs, the Nissan um, Accelerator in Hong Kong. These were more um, the the uh, cohort approaches. Actually, there's nothing to prevent a company from doing both. Uh, But, you know, this takes a fair amount of resources, so they tend to pick. And what I've noticed is the companies that are a little bit more comfortable with ambiguity, Mm. uh, open to serendipity, you know, tend to favor the accelerators, the cohorts, because then, you know, things you never anticipated could Mm. happen. And, you know, Infinity Labs in Hong Kong, for example, actually parked one of their little innovation teams in the premises of the accelerator because you never know what might happen at a water cooler conversation. But companies which need more predictability about outcomes tend to go down the cohort, I beg your pardon, the funnel route. And I think there are creative ways to combine these. Okay, but the third piece, uh, the attention asymmetry, Mm. and this to me is the truly distinguishing feature between the companies that do it well and not, is... They um, cultivate exemplars, um, intentionally develop success stories, especially early on by, say, providing extra handholding, being very mindful about the kinds of startups they're bringing in and uh, so on. um, Because that then gives both parties an idea of what success can look like. Mm. And then both Mm. sides have a better idea of how to prioritize their attention. Let me pause there. Uh, was there anything you want me to to say a little bit more on, and then I can briefly comment on the second part.
1: No, this is this is fascinating, Shaimin. I think as well for people listening, we're getting kind of the the um, the lecture or in the systematic approach really to to setting up. You know how to do it. Um, I think particularly when you talked about understanding goals. You know what are you trying to do here? Are you, are you looking at the building block model that you've got with Microsoft, in terms of like inviting companies to build on what you do, or solving a pain point, and I think it's really interesting the way that you're inviting, hopefully our you know listeners to to think of, to think into that, to think into goal structure and attention. I'm curious to, to hear what that second one is, that second how approach that you have, what do you mean.
2: Great. Well, I'm glad that uh, what you've heard so far resonates with you. Yeah. So now that we know the process to address asymmetry, the other part of addressing how is, how do we build and internalize a partnering capability,
1: mm.
2: right? Because otherwise it ends up becoming a one-off sort of thing. And I think there's a, you know, what I've learned in this regard can perhaps be applied to a range of um, uh, capabilities, but certainly with respect to startup partnering, I think it's important to initiate, to expand, and then systematize. And that the, the people who initiate this typically are entrepreneurs themselves. Jeremy is a great example at Unilever. Uh, another f- example I have is uh, Zach Weisfeld, who uh, played a very important role in Microsoft and is doing the same at Intel mm-hmm. in Israel, Hezus uh, Delval uh in Berlin, who did this at Bayer. And I, I, I find that all of these people are, are hugely entrepreneurial themselves mm. and very often get things going because um, that's often the, the most difficult thing. Very often a more bottom up approach, you know, sometimes even a little bit under the radar before you try to get a lot of it. Um, attention and I think in some cases that's useful because of what my co-author at London Business School Julian Birkinshaw refers to as the corporate immune system mm. you know there's a very natural tendency to uh, turn down new initiatives so get started but that's not going to be enough then you need repetition you need refinement you need to to get this thing now, building some critical mass. So in the Bayer example, for example, uh, Jesus, what he did was he, first of all, started very small in Berlin. He was giving away small grants to students to develop apps. So their focus was digital health. And the program got called Grants for Apps. And then it was, you know, why does it have to be students? It can be startups. Let's bring them into an office space in Berlin uh, for 100 days. Then why does it have to be Berlin? Let's encourage our subsidiaries in other countries to do it. So then other people started doing it and it started getting expanded. And then, you know, the process gets refined. And then the third piece, after you initiate and expand, oh, and by the way, when you expand, the key thing now is to get the buy-in of key people within the company, right? The, The initiation could, in some cases, be a little bit under the radar, ask for forgiveness rather than permission. But, you know, that's not going to get you very far. So eventually you need to get people on board. And then finally, systematize. And again, this is very, very crucial because otherwise it ends up becoming something at the periphery. How you can relate startup partnering or indeed any open innovation practice to core strategy, to... Culture transformation, I think this is what is important. And again, in Bayer, that's what I was very interested to see, at least for the period that I was observing, that they were linking this to, well, how do we uh, uh, transform our culture, for example. And uh, so you could see that influential leaders were showing up at these startup things Mm -hmm. to signal how important it was and relevant to the core Mm -hmm. of the business.
0: That is that is really really interesting. I I love the I think you paint the picture of like initiate starting small and then expand getting more people involved and then eventually relating it back to the cost strategy of the of the corporate and making sure that it continues it lives on. Um, and I think I'm just curious. Uh, and you might not um have a lot of and um, kind of thought about this before, but What do you think of corporate venture capital and their role in bringing in innovation and startups to the corporate? Um, I can see you laughing there.
2: (laughs) Very interesting question. You know, in fact, there's often been a debate about two things. One is intrapreneurship: should we do this ourselves, or should we engage with startups? Um, And then there is also a debate between should we engage with startups in a sort of non-equity kind of partnership or should we um, Mm. invest in them. And for me, all of these have a role and they're all complementary. There are certain things where it makes much more sense to do this internally and drive internal entrepreneurship, especially when proprietary technologies Mm. are involved and where it uh, is difficult to interface with external parties, at least initially. Now, the difference I find between uh, non-equity partnering and uh, corporate venture capital is typically the population of startups that come into play are a little bit different. Or uh, to put it in another way, I think corporate venture capital tends to be a small numbers game. Mm. Even the most active CVC funds in a given year will have investments in the 10s and they tend to be relatively mature startups. You're looking at a smallish pool, and, you know, important pool, but when you are doing the non-equity stuff, potentially you are looking at startups at an earlier stage than you would dare going anywhere near with with, uh, corporate venture capital, and it gives you more options as well. Now, in theory, one can also feed the funnel into the mm. into the other. In, in reality, I don't find that it works quite like that. And I also find the professionals that are involved in both of these things are a little bit different. The CVC guys are, are mostly, I, mm. I think, finance professionals and they bring in a, a VC perspective, which is great. Um, and and the, the sort of startup partnering people tend to be more marketing stroke innovation and they bring in a different perspective. I think both have a role. Uh, and I think the more joined up these things are within a broader open innovation strategy. The better it goes back to the mm. systematization point I was I was mentioning. So it's, it's great you brought up that the mm. question when you did.
0: Nice, thank you so much for your view on that.
1: Yeah, Neil is particularly interested in the work we do uh, within uh, CVCs, but also wider field in terms of startup partnerships and you know helping corporates to connect with startups. I think our last point we talked about the why starting with the why and it seems like common sense you know why not is probably the question uh, rather than why mm-hmm. looked at the how and I think that was really interesting the way that you you broke down the asymmetries but then also the, the process let's let's land on the where where are the dance floors? Mm-hmm. where is the the ripe the fertile ground for this to be happening um Shemin, do you want to just open and unpack that for us a little bit Absolutely. So
2: I think I've been lucky in two respects. One is I started researching this topic before it became a thing, as I've already said before. I graduated with my PhD in 2005, and I had the conversation that led to the dancing with gorillas phase in 2006. Um, And so back then, it was relatively new. So I've had the benefit of observing things over time. But the other aspect in which I've been extremely lucky is... I've also been able to observe this phenomenon over a vast breadth of um, locations. I started the the journey in Scotland, and by the time the book came out, I was in China, and along the way I'd also um, done interviews and research fieldwork in different parts of the world. So what I have come to realize is that there are two important distinctions to make when you think about location. One is uh, the distinction between advanced markets and emerging markets. And within a given context, the distinction between what you might call innovation hotspots or clusters and non-hotspots. Because in the end, typically innovation happens within subnational regions. So I think it isn't a coincidence that we talk about Silicon Valley which is a specific subnational uh, region within the United States and the UK, the Thames Valley region of Berlin in, in Germany. And so, on. of course, there are countries like Israel and Singapore, which are probably small enough to think of, you know, as, a, as an entity. But Singapore is a city state. And even within Israel, there are differences between what you might do in different parts of Israel. So bearing that in mind, Um, And, you know, what um, strategy professors love to do is to come up with two-by-two matrices. So you can think of a two-by-two, right? Advanced versus emerging and innovation hotspot versus non-hotspot. And so the insight I've uh, sort of gained from looking at different locations is you need to adjust what you do in Mm -hmm. each of these cells. So the big difference, between advanced markets and emerging markets tends to be the maturity of the ecosystem so in silicon valley or tel aviv it wasn't uncommon for me to talk to an entrepreneur who was on onto their third or fourth startup but in bangalore or beijing it tended to be first time entrepreneurs and you know so that has its own uh, challenges but on the other hand, the appetite that you see in the emerging markets, and in many cases supported by government policy, is huge. So you may have to uh, compensate mm-hmm. for some of the, um, the, the voids in an in emerging market, but at the same time leverage uh, the proximity to novel technologies. And because some of these regions leapfrog technologies, you might well be seeing the future of mobile technologies and so on in an emerging market more than in an advanced market. So that's one adjustment to make. The other is between the innovation hotspots and the non-hotspots. And I acknowledge that actually most of the corporate startup collaboration that I've observed has happened in, say, London in the UK, Silicon Valley in the US, Berlin, uh, Shenzhen in China, uh, what have you. But... And given that my work started in Glasgow uh, and I spent a bit of time in a city called Ningbo in China, I also was delighted to see that you could have corporate startup partnering in these uh, regions that are sort of off the beaten track. And for historical reasons or because of policy incentives, some corporations do have business activities in these kinds of regions. What I found was crucial there, though, was that they needed additional help from local policymakers Mm -hmm. because you don't have the critical mass of either the big companies or the startups in these non-innovation hotspots. And, you know, sometimes uh, you might do what Jeff Bezos did when he started Amazon. He actually took a very long road trip to get to an innovation hotspot, which was Mm -hmm. Seattle. But in other cases... For whatever reason, as as a startup or a big company, you have operations in these other regions too. What you need then, in particular, is to also include entrepreneurial policymakers. And actually, that notion can then be extended further because a part of the world that I was very privileged to also sort of do some field work in especially uh, before COVID, was Africa, where we have a small, because we have a small campus in Ghana. And there, too, I was seeing that, you know, the sort of entrepreneurial ecosystems that the big companies were interested in were relatively nascent. But there was the sense that there was huge potential. And there I found that, in fact, there were also entrepreneurial NGOs who were coming into the frame. You know, there's a Scandinavian NGO called Reach for mm. Change, that was sort of acting as a go-between. It was sort of like a co-cube, you know, helping large companies with operations in Ghana work with local social enterprises. Mm -hmm. And so, in fact, the where can be further extended to parts of the world that desperately need innovation, where innovation resources are relatively scarce by involving uh, entrepreneurial NGOs, by uh, involving multilateral agencies like the United Nations, then you can even add a completely uh, broader perspective uh, to this to say that as the United Nations talks about in its Sustainable Development Goals, the 17th of the 17 being partnerships Mm. for the goals, corporate startup partnering can in fact be part of how business can be a force Mm. for good.
0: I love it. I, I love that so much. Uh, at CoCube, I think we're running a series of 17, like 17 SDGs as well and talked about like each of the goals. And um, it's, so I love that you bring up the, the 17th goal, like the partnerships. And-
2: yeah. And even in your opening episode, I mean, it was about Asda working with a startup that had, you know, social impact as well, right, in terms of addressing food wastage. I mean, I think that's all to the good.
1: Yeah, what one big thing we're seeing, Shireen, is companies are m- making quite big sustainability ambitions. There's a lot of regulation coming in and it requires innovation. It requires thinking beyond your four walls. It requires st- it requires dancing with you, you know, startups to, to achieve these ambitions. That's one thing that we've definitely seen practically on the ground, is that startups really are the the answer.
2: I, I couldn't agree. More and I think this is actually one of the big um, shifts I'm seeing gaining um, momentum in in the month since the book came out. Digitalization, I think, was the big driver for a lot of the collaborations I was observing, including Unilever Foundry. Right, they were having to deal with customers who were increasingly uh, consuming more and more digital content and so on. I think sustainability. And by the way, digitalization will remain very important. Mm. I see sustainability as a big driver now and sustainability and digitalization can interact. So just recently, um, you know, one of our alumni, Jade Jew, uh, came back to campus and I was uh, very proud uh, as, a, as a former teacher of hers to be hearing a talk about how at PepsiCo she is leading a Accelerator program in the Asia Pacific region and their focus is sustainability. So, you know, how do you deal with reducing plastic wastage and so on, but tap the um, entrepreneurial energy and creativity of startups? Mm-hmm. So, Mark, I couldn't agree more with
0: you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I mean, at CoQ, we always say the future already exists, it's with startups um, and corporates there to help scale it and to help bring it to a bigger. Mm-hmm. Um, audience and you know making bigger impacts um and then you touch a bit on upon like the, the trends you started seeing and uh, any other trends you or have you noticed any difference in the way corporate leaders go about that innovation um with like startups like dancing with startups ever since you released the book
2: you know um i wrote an article called dancing with gorillas that came out in 2008 Mm -hmm. And then I sort of sat down and completed the draft of the book in 2020, thanks to COVID, because that's (laughs) what finally gave me the time to sit down. And I think that period between 2008 and 2020, you know, it was sort of bookended by the financial crisis in 2008 Mm -hmm. and um, COVID in uh, 2020, And I noticed three things in that period. One was globalization and particularly the rise of China, the rise of digitalization, and growing interest in sustainability because the Sustainable Development Goals were announced in 2015. There had Mm -hmm. been a a consultation process. Since in the last two, three years, I feel all three of these factors have sort of exploded even further. So, you know, globalization has given way to sort of geopolitical tension. Digitalization is on steroids in the sense of, you know, look at AI and chat mm-hmm. GPT and all of these other concerns. Uh, and then there is this uh, big urgency around sustainability. And so I don't think, um, so So the way I see it is these three factors were sort of always around, but they're now becoming even more intense and intersecting a lot more and companies are, uh, and their, their leadership teams and, and, frankly, everybody there, you know, are, are grappling with what this means. And I think people are under a lot of stress. Um, but at the same time, people are trying to understand what the opportunities are and, you know, how to achieve the art of the possible, where all of these important things, uh, you know, you have all of these constraints, yet at the same time, all of this creates the need. Mm -hmm. more than ever, for Mm -hmm. innovation um, that helps us move forward. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, digitalization on steroids is probably the very right term for what's happening right now um, and what we're seeing across the technology trends in the market. Um, Awesome. Well, um, we always end our podcast with one last question, um, and that is if you could give an advice to any of the corporate innovation leaders out there, what is the one key action they should take to save the corporate?
2: So I'm going to borrow an idea from someone else and uh, quote, or at least paraphrase Simon Sinek. Think big, start small, but start.
1: I love that. I love that. And I think even just listening to the podcast, maybe even as you take notes from what you've shared, Dr. Shameen, I'm sure there's, particularly in the how part of this podcast there might be little things to start with um we'll just end here as well with about your book so about you know reading more um dancing with gorillas where can we listen read your book shamin
2: well thanks for the question for (laughs) startups a free resource is this tedx talk um, so it's called um, The Art of Startups, Strategic Partnering. So look look up on YouTube and it's a, it's a short talk, uh, which is from the perspective of the startups. But for the large corporation, then um, maybe the website com will be a useful resource and uh, you can find ways to uh, get your hands on the book by uh, going to that website as well.
1: Brilliant. Gorillas Can Dance. Awesome. Well, if you want to let us know what you think about this story via um, social media channels, do find us on CoCubed. Um, you can find Dr. Shamin's work as well. And all the links we'll put also in the about section of this podcast. And if you are interested as well in being featured in the podcast, then please do reach out to us at connect at Thank you for tuning in. And we'll see you in our next episode.